We are finishing up a series today, it's been a brief series, on the covenants. And I have been presenting the various covenants that appear in the Old Testament to give us the structure of how the Bible fits together. And these are, these are handles that enable us to, to see how the whole of Scripture fits together. And we're in the prophets today, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 31, and we'll be uh, summing up today this this last installation of the covenants, and this is the new covenant, the new covenant. So we'll look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to verse 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the easiest and probably cheapest and simplest and most common marketing tactics is to label something as new or the all-new or new and improved. And sometimes the product is exactly the same as it was before, and it's simply new packaging. And they must think we're not very bright because they'll even do that. They'll put on the the outside, it'll say new presentation. And it just means there's new packaging. What you get is exactly the same. But uh, somehow that I guess that helps sell it if it's a new presentation. Sometimes the product is actually worse because they've made it cheaper, they've used worse components, and you think you're getting the same thing, and they say it's new, and it is new, but it's worse than the old one. Oftentimes, however, new is better, isn't it? Because technology improves, and they're able to get better uh, better materials, and, and better software, and better hardware, and fit it into a smaller package, and the things work faster and more smoothly, and so oftentimes newer is better. Today we're going to be falling down into the middle of this big book of Jeremiah, and we read a passage that jumps off the page, and people agree that this passage is is a central passage for Jeremiah that really sums up what's going on in the days of Jeremiah, and from these verses, Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, is screaming, I am going to do something new. So we're going to look at what was the old thing that's being replaced and what is this new thing that God was going to do. Now, first of all, we need to understand the life and times of Jeremiah. 
We have been jumping through the Old Testament, haven't we? We looked at Adam, and we looked at Noah, and we looked at Abraham, and we looked at Moses, and we looked at David. And now we're moving some 400 years after the time of David. And the last installation, last week, the last installation of the covenant of grace that we looked at was the promise to David to have a perpetual, enduring monarchy, dynasty. And we then continue to read in the Old Testament and find that David was the high water mark for Israel, and he was the high water mark for the monarchy of, uh, of Israel. After David came Solomon, who started well, and then we found out that he ended very badly, and then his son took up where he left off and started badly. And under his son, named Rehoboam, the first thing he did was divide the kingdom. By his impetuousness and his foolishness, he divided the kingdom and ten of the twelve tribes, these twelve tribes were descended from the sons of Jacob, uh, Israel, and these were the twelve tribes of Israel. The first thing he did was to lose ten of the twelve tribes. And so the line of David was left with only two tribes, and then the other ten formed the northern kingdom. So you'll find in the literature it talks about the northern kingdom. That continued with the name Israel. And then the southern kingdom, the two that were loyal to David, that was called Judah. So we have the southern kingdom, Judah, the line of David, the northern kingdom of Israel, who had rebelled against, against uh, the line of David. Now, interestingly, each of those kingdoms had 20 monarchs, 20 monarchs. And if you read about the kings of the northern kingdom, there's a summary statement after the end of their lives. And they were all evil. All 20 of them. All of them were bad. All of them were idolaters. All of them turned the hearts of the people away from the Lord and towards idolatry. And so, in 722 B.C., God used the reigning superpower of the day, which were the Assyrians, and He sent the Assyrians. The Assyrians attacked Israel. They devastated the land, conquered it, and the policy of the Assyrians in order to deal with their vassal states, their conquered states, was to mesticize them, to make them mestizos, to mix them with the nation so they would lose their identity. And that's what they did. So this, those ten tribes, perhaps you've heard of the, 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 the ten lost tribes of Israel, they were lost from that time on, and they've never been put together again in that form because they were turned into half-race and mixed with other nations, and they lost their identity. We find their descendants in the New Testament. They were called the Samaritans, but they were despised by the Jews because they were half-breeds. And the Jews said, you have no part in us. That was in 722 B.C. And uh, Judah had 20 monarchs. That's the southern kingdom, 20 monarchs. A few of them were good. Some of them were so-so and at least half of them were bad. So they did a little better than Israel, but they didn't do as well as they could have and should have. And so, God sent the next superpower, which was Babylon, or the Babylonians, and in 586, starting around 600, but then by 586, they were tired of these rebellious Jews, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sent his troops, and they raised Jerusalem to the ground. They knocked down the wall, they knocked down the buildings, they destroyed the temple, they uh, ended the sacrifices there, they desecrated it, and they 
carried off the people into exile to Babylon and carried off the, the descendant of David. Uh, they carried them to Babylon to be exiled there for 70 years. Okay? Now, the prophets. What was the job of the prophets? The prophets had a rather unenviable job. The people had turned away from the Lord. He had given them their law, His law. They had constantly turned away from His law. So the, the prophets, their job was to call the people back to obey God's law and to worship Him. And uh, for their efforts, they were often persecuted and often killed. Jeremiah had a very unenviable job because of the time in which he preached. Isaiah came before Jeremiah. Isaiah said, his message was, they're coming, they're coming, you better repent because they're coming. He didn't name who they were, although there's just a suggestion there that they were the Babylonians. He said, they're coming. Jeremiah lived later and his job was to say, they're here. They're here. And because they're here, because you did not repent, there is no time left. You have no longer the opportunity of averting this disaster, and so what you should do is to capitulate before the Babylonians. You should just wave the white flag. You should just give up and you should surrender. Politically speaking, think about how popular a message that would be. The king is trying to rally the people, and Jeremiah is going around preaching and saying, just give up. So he got thrown in prison, he got thrown into a well, he got persecuted, uh, barely escaped with his life because he was preaching what they thought was treason to just lay down before, lie down before the Babylonians. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet because he lived right before, during, and right after the conquest of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And he wrote that very depressing book that comes right after Jeremiah that's called Lamentations. Lamentations. And it's a book of lamenting. Lamenting what the people of God had done to themselves and the judgment that they had brought upon them. There's a summary statement in Second Chronicles that explains what happened. And this is Second Chronicles' last chapter almost the last part of Second Chronicles, and it's in chapter 36, verse 15. And it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, the prophets, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. And that's what Jeremiah lived to see. The time in which there was no remedy. So, Jeremiah preaches destruction, and then the destruction comes, and then his message begins to change. Because the judgment has come, the destruction has come, and the message then becomes, now what? What does God have for us now? And the tone of his message changes, and it changes into a message of hope for the future of the people of God. And that gets us ready for this great text that we're going to see today. Because this falls into the category of hope for the people of God. Now we're going to look at this new covenant that he announced, and we're going to look at when, who, what not, 
and what. Okay, those are the things we're going to be looking at. So first of all, when it's going to take place. If you look at verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Uh, this whole section is about days that are coming. It's all about the future. If you look back at verse 27, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And then also if you look at verse 38, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This whole chapter is about days that are coming. So this is going to be future. He doesn't say how long in the future. But this is the only time in all of the Old Testament where we have this expression that there's going to be a new covenant in the future. New covenant shows only uh, up only here in the Old Testament. It shows up many times in the New Testament. And now we, so, now we look at who. So we have when. It's going to be in days that are coming. Who would be involved in this new covenant? Look at verse 31 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the new covenant is with whom? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. But there's a problem here, isn't there? What did we find out happened to the house of Israel? They're gone. Racially speaking, tribally speaking, nationally speaking, the house of Israel does not exist anymore. And here, God is saying, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. But that house of Israel has been scattered among the nations. And then if you look at, to give us a clue, if you look at verse 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So first he says, follow me, he says, first of all he says, I will make it with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Problem is, house of Israel doesn't exist anymore. And so we might think he would say, okay, well, I'll make it with the house of Judah. But then when he makes the repetition, he says, I will make it with whom? With the house of Israel. What's going on here? What's going on here, we have it suggested here, but we have it in the prophets. What's going on here is there's going to be a new version of the house of Israel. And now Israel and Judah that were divided are going to be reunited and they're going to be reunited under that original name, no longer called Israel and Judah. Now the second time it's repeated, now it's going to be the house of Israel. But we ought not to imagine that it's simple reconstruction of the racial people of Israel. This is the idealized Israel. This is the new Israel. This is the true Israel. And that's what we see developing through the prophets. And we saw last week, remember this, if God does more, He hasn't done less. If God does more, He hasn't done less. And we saw what God does, jumping ahead here, but we saw that this new Israel is constituted out of what? All the nations have an opportunity to join in with this new house of Israel. So that's the who. Then there is the negation. What will this covenant not be? Verse 32. And he says here, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant was that? You remember we've looked at different ways. We've looked at the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace. And then under the covenant of grace, we've looked at a number of different installations of that covenant of grace. And under that covenant of grace, we looked at 
We've looked at Noah, we looked at Abraham, we looked at Moses, and we looked at David so far. So which of those is he mentioning here? Not like that covenant which I made, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant would that be? Would that be Noah, Abraham, Moses, or David? A little test here. What's that? When did he take them out of Egypt? Who was the... Moses, exactly. So we're talking about the Mosaic covenant, which was the covenant of law. Covenant of law. And he says, this new covenant will not be like that old covenant that I made with Moses. And that was the covenant of law. Do you remember what we saw when he made that, new co- or that covenant with Moses? Do you remember how the people responded? Let's look. Back in Exodus 24. We saw this. Let's look at it again. Let's review this. We saw how they responded and we praised their response. Uh, Chapter 24 of Exodus, verse 7. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now when we saw that, We praised that. We said, that's a great response, isn't it? When God says, this is how you should live, how should we respond? We should respond saying, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. This is what we will do. However, we also noted a problem with that. And that was that they overestimated their ability to do it. The impulse was good. The response was good. Their evaluation of their own ability was was excessive. And so, when we look at Jeremiah uh, 31-32, it says, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Then it says what? My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Was the problem with the covenant of law? The problem was not with the covenant of law. The problem is with the people's ability to obey that covenant of law, a problem that we have up to this day. And he says, that was the problem. They broke that covenant. And just read of the history of Israel, the history of Judah. What did they do? They broke that covenant repeatedly. And so, he says, it's not going to be just a repetition of that. Something new is going to happen. And what is it? And now we get to the new. Look at verse 33. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So what will this new covenant be? Will God say, Something like, well, that law thing didn't work, and so I'm not going to worry about law anymore. I'm going to abolish the law. That would be impossible. Because it's God's holy law. It reflects who God is. It's His moral law. It reflects His character. He cannot negate that law. Nor can He just ignore it for the same reason. What does He say? I'm not going to undo that law. I'm not going to to ignore that law. I'm not going to abolish that law. I'm going to write that law again. How did he write it the first time? He wrote it on tablets of stone, and then Moses wrote on whatever the writing material of the day was into the book of the covenant. But that was outside of the people. 
And he says, I'm going to write it again, but this time I'm going to write it inside. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And because I'm going to write that law on their hearts, and it will be inside of them, as a result of that, they will know me. If we read the Old Testament, we have to come to the conclusion that many of those who were part of, officially, the people of God, didn't know God. And so there was a need for them to say to each other, Know the Lord. You're called by His name, but you don't know Him. Know the Lord. And it says here that once that law becomes written on the heart, they will know God, and they will be His people, and He will be their God. Not just in name, but in reality in the way they live their lives and in the direction of their hearts and their lives and in their inclinations. We see in other places in the prophets, refer to a couple of them here, Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24, 7. He says, I will give them a heart. You see what the prophets are about? Not just some sort of external conformity, but he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole what? Heart. And if you go ahead to Ezekiel, who came after Jeremiah, in Ezekiel chapter 11, uh, verses 19 and 20, look how these things fit together in the prophets. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see how these all fit together in the new covenant? Uh, Interior writing of the law of God. A change of heart so that these are really known by God and know God as His people, and He as their God. Therefore, it would be superfluous to say, know the Lord, because those who have experienced this heart change, they know the Lord. And it's obvious from the inside out that they know the Lord. Now, one more thing about this new covenant, and that is the power thereof. Going back to Jeremiah 31, the last phrase of verse 34 where it says, for I will, for I will. Now, that for is describing a causal connection. We could translate that because. And so now, here we have the explanation. We have the cause of all that's come before. The cause of the the law being written on the heart. The cause of them knowing the Lord. The cause of them being His people and He being their God. A cause of all this transformation. And what's the cause? What's the explanation? And this is what's the new thing. The new thing about this new covenant. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, let's think about this. Forgiving iniquity. Remembering sin no more. We looked at the covenant of law, didn't we? And there was a provision in the covenant of law for the sin of the people. There was what we called the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law surrounded the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And when the people sinned, what did they do? They brought sacrifices to the Lord. And there were uh, at least... 
a couple of serious deficiencies with this sacrificial system. The first one was this. It didn't work. Now, how do we know it didn't work? Well, because it had to be repeated all the time. It didn't, it didn't finally take away sin because they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. And along with that constant repetition was a constant reminder to God that the people were sinners. And so, how could God, if we're going to use sort of human language here, even as the prophets do, how could God forget sins? How could He remember them no more if the people were always reminding Him of their sins? So, uh, it didn't work because the sacrifices didn't finally correspond to the sins that were committed. In contrast, in contrast, in the New Covenant, God would finally and definitively deal with sin so that He could, as it were, put them out of His remembrance forever. There is a verse in another of the prophets, in Micah, and he uses some illustrations here. In Micah chapter 7, at the end of Micah, which has a lot of, about judgment, but right at the end it says, He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What are the two illustrations here? One illustration is that God will take our sin and He will grind it under His foot. And the other is that He will take it and do what? He'll toss it into the depths of the sea. Have you ever heard of the Mariana Trench? The Mariana Trench, as far as we know, is the deepest part of the ocean. As far as our best soundings, and now we do it with very sophisticated means, but they, they discovered it in 1875 by letting a weighted rope out, and they got to a certain depth, and their rope just kept going and going and going and going, and now we know that it is about 36,000 feet deep. If you were to toss Mount Everest into the Mariana Trench, there would still be over a mile of water between the top of Everest and the surface of the water. If you've flown nationally or internationally a long flight and the pilot comes on and says our cruising altitude will be 30,000, sometimes 35,000 feet, imagine all of that water. Now, it's hard to explore the Mariana Trench. It's dark, and it's cold, and because of the water pressure, it crushes everything. Now, finally, they've been able to send some things down there and get some recordings and some soundings. But if I were to elect a place to have my sin deposited <laughs> so that no one ever ever would find it again, I would choose the Mariana Trench. And that's what God is saying. He's God, is saying, he, God is saying, in this new covenant, that's what I'm going to do. I am going to dump it into a place where no one will find it, and I then will ignore it myself. I will put it out of my own sight. In Hebrews, 
and throughout the New Testament, we find, as I'm sure you have already figured out, that the one who put sin away finally is Jesus. That He is the one who fulfills this new covenant that Jeremiah preached. If you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, no longer are to come, but the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. New covenant promised, new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. The result is this. The result is that God forgives all of the sins of those who trust in Jesus. All of those for whom Christ has shed His blood. All of those who have entered under that that forgiveness that Christ offers, and that comes through faith in Him. And then what is the result of that? It's the same result that Jeremiah prophesied. And that is, once we have that forgiveness, once we have God's favor toward us in Christ, and our sins been wiped away, then we truly know God. Then we have His law written on our hearts, no longer as a merely external thing, but that which comes from inside of us. How does this work? A silly, simple, perhaps, illustration. Speed limits. I live along A1A, State Road A1A, and the speed limit there is 35 miles an hour. When I am rushing to get someplace, and when I know that the bridges go up on the half an hour, half hour and the hour, and I need to get across that bridge, that stops there that that sign, that speed limit sign is external to me, and it is a bother, it is a nuisance, and it is threatening my way of life. It is restricting me because I am a good driver and I am able to conduct my car faster than that and safely. It is, it, is, it is against me, that speed limit, because it's outside of me. Now, when I'm driving along A1A and I'm thinking about the pedestrians and I'm concerned for their safety and I'm cons- concerned also from inside of me about cyclists, and this time of year, when I'm aware of the fact that, that the population almost doubles over there on the barrier island, and that there are more people walking around, some of them older folks, and some of them families with children, and when I realize that, 
that there are people that come from other states and have other driving habits, and I'm concerned about them as well, I find, I find that what I tend to do is drive somewhere between 25 and 30 miles an hour, and I find out that I'm doing that because people are piling up behind me and they're trying to pass me on the turn lane. Now what has happened to me? What's the difference? I don't need that speed limit sign anymore. I don't need it external to me. Why not? Because I have it inside me. What, what's coming out of me? Well, that which is behind the law to begin with, a concern for others, a love for others. And when that's in my heart, instead of my impatience and my selfishness and my, my drivenness to get where I need to go, when that's in my heart, then I don't need for that external sign to tell me how fast to drive. It's already written in here. That's how it is with God's law. That's the problem about obeying God's law when it's just outside of us and it cramps our style and it gets in our way and we don't understand it and it's a nuisance and it's a bother and I should be free to be able to do what I want. If that's our attitude, we will never get close to obeying God's law. But if that law and that which is behind the law, love for God and love for neighbor is born in our hearts after we have been forgiven for all of our sins, do you know what we will find We won't find a perfect ability in ourselves to obey that law this side of eternity, but we will find, we will find being born in our hearts an impulse, a desire to obey what God has told us to do. That's the transformation that takes place. Now, now we know about the new things that God proposed to do in this new covenant, and we know that Christ has done those. So let's review. Old covenant, law, external, inability to keep it, and a sacrificial system that keeps reminding God and ourselves that we're sinners and never takes away sin. That's the Old Covenant. New Covenant. Law written on our hearts. God is our people. We are His, uh, God is our God. We are His people. And we know Him truly. We have His law written on our hearts because our sins have been forgiven once and for all. It's new. Let me ask you, is it improved? Is it better? Which do you like? The new one. Way better. Not only new, but also better. Now, marketers, when they are able to convince you that it's new and it's also better, now what's the next step? They say, buy it. It looks like we're convinced that it's not only new, but it's better. But guess what? There's nothing to buy. You can't buy it Because it's already been paid for. Because Christ is the one who has bought it for all who receive it with empty hands by faith. It's yours for the receiving through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the new covenant which is not only new but immeasurably better. We were the problem with the Old Covenant. We couldn't keep it. And so we had to keep reminding You that we couldn't keep it and remind You and ourselves of our sins. But we thank You that Jesus is the one who kept that law and Jesus is the one who offered Himself. And Jesus is the one who is that surety of the New Covenant. I pray for all of us here, all who are listening to this Word this morning, 
that You would give us faith in Jesus, that we might receive the benefits of that new covenant, the forgiveness of all our sins, so that we might have Your law written on our hearts and that we might delight to do that law, that we might obviously be Your people and You be our God, that we would have that true knowledge of You, which Jesus said is the essence of eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.